this morning we uh, is one of my favorite mornings. I love getting to do this because we are starting a new study and a new book of the Bible this morning. We study the books of the Bible here. It is something we are passionate about and we love at CF. We love Bible-centered preaching and teaching. We love scripture and we want everything we do as a community to be grounded in it. And so what we do normally is we tend to just walk through a book of the Bible. We tend to take a book and just go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, um, because it helps us to understand the fullness of the original message of these different books. And it also doesn't allow us to hide from any of the difficult uh, or uncomfortable passages of Scripture, right? We want to be careful and considerate and develop a full and rich, deep understanding of the Scriptures. And so we just finished a very long study in the New Testament, studying the book of Acts. And so I thought to counter that, we're going to do a short study in the Old Testament, and so this morning, we're going to open up to the book of Jonah. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to Jonah. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in a seat back in front of you, and there should be a bookmark that you can crack open right to Jonah. It's going to be towards the back of the Old Testament. Um, it's kind of tricky to find because it is a little bit shorter. So why Jonah? I like to, as we jump in, I, like, I don't have just a list of the books up on a wall that I just throw a dart at and pick. There is some thought and process to why we study what we study as a church. And so I want to talk a little bit about why we're looking at this book, why we're looking at Jonah. Um, and number one, and I say this every time we start a new study, it's in the Bible. And I know that's obvious, but it needs to be stated. It's in the Bible, and so it is valid enough reason for us to study it. Because 2 Timothy 3 says that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the people of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This book, the Bible, is the living, breathing, active word of the holy creator of all existence. And so we don't want to neglect it. We don't want to ignore it. We don't want to just treat it as, you know, if I have time, I'll read a couple of verses. We want to be engaged with Scripture and make that a priority. But way too often in our lives... There are other voices that become louder in our heads and our hearts, and we choose these other voices way too often. We decide what we want to hear. We, we decide what we want to take in and influence us, right? Church on a Sunday is an hour, hour and a half, somewhere in that range. How much of your week is the news on in your house? How long are podcasts and music playing through your headphones on your commute? How much of your week is given to Netflix, to Hulu, to social media? These things are not bad within themselves, but you've got to realize that everything has an agenda. Everything is trying to teach. Everything is trying to train, trying to convince, trying to take up residency in your head and heart. If the only time that you are opening up your Bible is when I come up here and I say, okay, now open your Bible, then just by sheer time spent alone, you are being discipled by the world to a Far greater amount than the faith that you claim to have. You are not going to just wake up one day and by hope and luck be a mature Christian. Just because you have gray hair on your head, it doesn't mean you're mature. Just because you've been a Christian for a long time doesn't mean you're eating at the grown-ups table. It takes intentionality. It takes effort. It takes time. All of the Bible is for all of us, and it is all good to be studied. And so Jonah's in the Bible, so we're going to study Jonah. Another reason we're studying Jonah is because this book forces us to ask some serious questions about ourselves, about our concept of who we as followers believe and what a person of God is supposed to look like. 
It's a book that deals with us, with our concepts and views of culture. The main focus of the book, Jonah, is a prophet who rebels against God and runs away. We meet pagan idolatrous sailors. This morning we're going to look at them. Pagan idolatrous sailors who actually have a soft heart and repent of their ways. There's a powerful political leader in this book who actually is humble. It's a book that says this is what you think people are supposed to look like, but it's not always as surface level as we want to make it be. One of the main reasons, though, I want to study this book is because we live in a time in history where there is division about everything. We have trouble finding common ground as people, finding ways and places where we can agree and actually engage with one another in a civil conversation. And when we actually, when we do disagree, it's no longer just a disagreement, but we have taken disagreements and we escalate them to something much bigger. And it escalates to this level of disregard and animosity that causes relationships to be fractured and broken. And as we live in that place, that's the culture we're existing in right now. We're going to study this book that reminds us that God loves our enemies. And he calls us, followers of Christ, to do the same. This book forces us to consider the reality and rejoice in the character of God that led him to love us when we were his enemies and that he saved us. Jonah puts a magnifier on our own insecurities and flaws and failures and hopefully calls us to repent and be humble enough to show grace and mercy to others in the same way that God has done to us. And right off the top, before we even get into the book, this is a book that, as I said, Jonah, I'm sure even if you don't have a Bible background, this is one of those books, one of those accounts in the Bible that transcends Christian culture, right? It goes beyond it. It's one of the more famous ones that gets outside the walls of the church. People generally know some idea of Jonah and a big fish, not a whale, a big fish. We're going to talk about it. Even if you don't have, like I said, a Bible or church background, you probably know Jonah to some degree, right? The Bible is made up of many different genres of writing, and we treat each one differently. We read and study each one differently. There is nothing that would tell us this book is a metaphor or a parable or anything other than history. In fact, Jesus himself refers to Jonah and spoke about him as though he is an actual person that historically lived. And so that's how we're going to treat this book. Okay? There are some scholars, there are some people who want to take it and make it just a story. We're going to treat this as history because there's nothing that tells us it's not, okay? Okay, a little background on the book. This is what's known as a minor prophet. In the Bible, you have the major prophets, you have the minor prophets. Just because it's minor doesn't mean it isn't important or it's inferior. Minor just means it's smaller. If you compare Jonah to like Isaiah, right? Isaiah is many, many long wordy chapters. Jonah is four relatively short chapters. This book was written probably in the 4th or 5th century, many, many years after when Jonah actually lived. It's different than most, pretty much all the rest of the prophetic books in the Old Testament. Because most of the time when you read one of the books of the prophets, it starts and it refers, it repeats itself over and over and it says, Thus says the Lord. And the book is basically uh, contains what God is speaking to the people through the prophet, right? That's most, pretty much all of the, prof the prophetic books except for Jonah, because those books really focus on what the word of the Lord says, whereas Jonah focuses on the prophet itself. This book, Jonah, is really just a focus on him. He only preaches one sermon, and he does it, and it's like eight words long. This is a study about the person. 
And so as we jump in today, I got three general focal points to kind of keep us on track this morning. And that is God's profit, God's power, and God's provision. So let's pray and then we'll jump in and talk about Jonah. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this opportunity to gather and worship you, to celebrate and enjoy you. God, we thank you for this gift of this place, this physical place where we can come and find rest and find encouragement and find friends and family and be together. God, you are the God of community. You made community. You have eternally existed within community, within yourself. And so it is important that we embrace that. You have made us to embrace that. God, help us when it's hard, when it when relationships get hurt and attacked and broken and severed. Help us to be a people that pursue reconciliation, that pursue restoration and engage with one another. God, we pray for Grace Place. We pray for the kids of our church, Lord, that you would speak to them this morning, God. We thank you for the volunteers in that ministry, and we ask that you would continue to to watch over them. And and as they are upstairs studying, Lord, that you would speak through the, the leaders, the volunteers up there, that you would give them extra patience and encouragement and joy as they spend time modeling and teaching the gospel to the kids of our church, Lord, we pray that you would save them at, a, at an early age that they might walk with you for a long, long time. God, as we open this book this morning, as we get challenged and encouraged by your words and this account of your prophet, Lord, I pray that we would hear these things and respond, not just take it in as information, but actually respond to what you have for us this morning. Lord, as I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. So God's prophet. Jonah served during the reign of King Jeroboam II, which is somewhere between 790 and 750 BC. Okay, um, The kings of Israel, when you're looking at the Old Testament, the kings of Israel, uh, once, the, once the kingdom gets split right after David, the kingdom gets split into a northern kingdom, southern kingdom. And most kings are either a northern king or a southern king and either good or bad. That's basically how you can figure out what king is which. King Jeroboam II is a bad northern king. Most of them are bad. That's not very unique for him. And so he, we see it in 2 Kings 14 uh, where Jonah shows up. It says, In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, the king of Jodah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Told you he was a bad dude. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, his dad, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebohamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord. The God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant, Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath, Hefer. Jonah tells Jeroboam, you are going to have great military success. Even though you're a bad dude, even though you hurt and you don't lead in a way that glorifies God, you're going to have great military success. And he does. Even though this king is wicked and evil, God shows grace and mercy to the people. And Jonah speaks this word of hope and says that even though you have The way that you lead is not in the way with God's will. God is going to protect, and he gives a word of hope to the people. This word of hope, and this is the only time Jonah shows up before his book, it's a little bit different than the Jonah we meet in our study this morning. So let's open and go to Jonah 1. 
Jonah 1, we're going to start in verse 1, says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Let's stop there. Yep, it's one of those kind of studies where we do a few verses at a time. Jonah is the son of Amittai. Amittai means constant consistency, faithfulness, truth. Jonah is the son of consistency, faithfulness, and truth. Though we are going to see he does not live up to the hype. Jonah is given a clear word and instruction from God. Get up, go to Nineveh, and publicly acknowledge their evil and sin. So let's talk about Nineveh. Nineveh is a major city of the Assyrians. In fact, it was the capital of the empire and one of the most major cities in the entire known world at the time. The Assyrians show up throughout the Old Testament and never in a good way. They were an evil and wicked people who were the perpetual enemies of the Israelites. They were a people whose culture was dominated by war and control and power. Any eras of peace that they may have enjoyed only happened due to their propensity for extreme violence leading to the destruction of other nations and then instilling a fear in anyone else from attacking them. The prophet Nahum speaks of Nineveh and of the Assyrians in this way in Nahum 3. Woe to that bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey. The crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot. Horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. And for all the countless whoring of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whoring and the people with her charms. That is what Nineveh, that's what the Assyrians brought. Now, eventually, Nineveh and the Assyrians would fall due to persistent wars with multiple nations at the same time. They were so about fighting and corruption, they got into too many battles in too many different directions and couldn't hold up their borders, and eventually they do fall. But Nineveh is not a place of Israelites. This was not a land of Jewish people. This was a city full of Gentile, pagan, bloodthirsty, idolatrous enemies of the people of God. That's who God tells Jonah to go to. Go to that great major city, that metropolis, and preach to your enemies that God hates their sins and they need to repent or perish. Think about that for a second. Think about how amazing this is. Because this was not a city built on the law of Moses. And yet God is telling Jonah to go and preach repentance to them. Repent. Turn away from what you are doing and turn in the opposite direction towards God. That's what repentance means. How amazing of foreshadowing of this. This is just what we got done studying in Acts, right? When the gospel goes to the Gentiles, to non-Jewish people, and they were welcomed in and invited into the family of God. God has given a little bit of taste to that. He's saying, Jonah, you can be part of doing something amazing. Something that is almost impossible to comprehend. That To call non-Jews into some kind of relationship with God. And while that sounds amazing, it is also an overwhelming and very big call on Jonah. Right? It's one thing for one Christian to tell another Christian, hey, what you are doing is against the will and character of God. Right? Like when you have two Christians in community, we say, like, we agree on scripture, we agree on, on, on grace, on mercy, on the cross, on gospel, we agree on these things, we agree on what God says is evil and wicked and what God says is good and pure. And I see that you are living 
in sin, it's one thing when you have this like set, more like understood morality between two people, but that's not what's happening here. This is go into enemy territory and tell them that a God that they may or may not even acknowledge exists has a problem with how they are living and that they need to change. Jonah receives this instruction. He receives this word. And like all of us, he has a choice to make. Will he submit to the will of God or not? He chooses not. And we see in verse 3, Jonah rose and flees to Tarshish. He flees from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down to it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. There is so much grammatically going on in this verse, we could spend a long time. Jonah rose. God says, get up. Jonah says, all right, I'm up. God says, get going. Jonah says, okay, I'm going to get going. But he didn't go where God told him to. But he also didn't just stay put, right? God said, get up and go. And Jonah says, all right, I'm going to get up and go. He didn't just sit at home pretending like he didn't hear anything. So he clearly heard the word of God. He clearly understood what was intended for him. He made a move. He made a choice. It was just a really bad one. He rose with a plan to go to Tarshish. He does this to get away from the presence of the Lord. That's it. That phrase is repeated twice. It is the bookends of verse 3. The verse opens and closes with this statement, from the presence of the Lord. Do you think Jonah really felt like he could escape the presence of the Lord? I mean, he's a prophet. He has a relationship and connection to God that most people don't. Surely he knew what David wrote in Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Jonah knew he couldn't literally get away from the presence of God, but what he was doing here was trying to get away from being put into the service of God. He literally goes in the complete opposite direction of where God called him to. Tarshish is the most west known place he could possibly go across the sea. God says, go east to Nineveh. Go walk the land and go east to Nineveh. Instead, he hops on a boat to get as far west, literally the complete opposite direction of where God called him to. It was the most western part of the world. It was far away. It was exotic and mysterious. It was known for its impressive fleet of ships, upon which was amazing cargo. We read in 1 Kings 10, it says, For the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, this fleet of ships used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. That's just, a, that's a good time. That's a lot of fun. Because of this, because it was far away, because when anything from Tarshish did come into the culture, it was exotic. It was seen as this place of fantasy. It was the unknown. It was the unique. It was the adventurous. And this is the decision Jonah has before him. Go to the hard and scary city of Nineveh with a message of judgment and repentance, which would probably get you, at the best case scenario, beaten up real good, if not killed. But you know that you're following the will of God. Or take a trip to an exotic and mysterious place of fun, but be in defiance of the will of God. Scary and hard, but with God. Fun and exciting, but without God. Now Jonah is not the first, nor is he the last, who has to flip this coin and make this decision. Have you ever had a time where you knew, you knew the right thing to do? 
the God-honoring thing to do. But it seemed overwhelming and difficult. And instead, you could just avoid it. You could ignore it. You could even just go do the complete opposite. Now, we aren't told in chapter 1 why Jonah does what he does and why he doesn't want to go to Nineveh, but we are given insight in chapter 4, and I'll give you a little taste of it in chapter 4 because I think his, his motives are going to surprise you a little bit. In Jonah 4, chapter, verse 2, he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh to preach repentance because he knew that if he did and the people responded, God would forgive them. And that made Jonah angry. Jonah hated the idea that his sworn enemies, these murdering pagans, could possibly not have to face the judgment of God for their decisions. But Jonah, Jonah, you're a prophet. You speak the word of God on behalf of God. That's the gig. You should know better, Jonah. You should do better, Jonah. Is that not the same for us? Jesus says in Matthew 5, You have heard it said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. One of the questions I think we need to wrestle with throughout this study, and more than that, just as followers of God moving and living in this world, is do we love and pray for our enemies? Do we care for, have compassion towards, and do good toward those who would be our enemies, expecting and wanting nothing in return? Not in theory, not ideally, not, you know, yeah, abstract, yeah, I'm general, generally a nice person. But actually, practically, when was the last time when you had an opportunity to show true, unconditional love to a person that in some form or fashion you would put into the enemy camp? When was the last time you went out of your way to show them kindness? Not just if it showed up, if I happened to have that chance, but you actively found a way to be a beacon of hope and light and kindness and love to someone who would be technically an enemy. Jonah hated the idea of this. And so instead of going and doing the thing he knew God wanted him to do, doing the hard thing, doing the unpleasant thing, he hops on a boat and in its essence telling God, no. Now, you see, the Israelites at this point in history are not really water people. They were landlocked. They didn't go on boats. They weren't fishermen by nature. That doesn't come for many generations. They were really known as land dwellers. But Jonah is willing to trust his well-being to some random sailors just to get away from what God wanted him to do. This is God's prophet. Angry, frustrated, rebellious, and selfish. I think we could probably replace God's prophet for God's people, and the descriptors don't change much. But lucky for us and for Jonah, even though God's prophet is flawed, God's power is great, and God's provision is perfect. So let's talk about God's power. Let's jump back in and go to verse 4. 
But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain said, came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that the great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed harder to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it has pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Jonah gets on this ship, headed away from God's will. But you see, he can't actually escape the presence of God because he is omnipotent, he is or omnipresent, and he is everywhere all the time. And along with that, he is omnipotent, he is all-powerful. And so you see in verse 4 there, The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, that there was a mighty tempest on the sea, and the ship threatened to break up. God didn't just send a great wind, he didn't just place a great wind on the sea, no, he hurled, he threw it a great wind on the sea. He put a little extra juice behind it. Because of this great storm, and the way that it shows up, and when it shows up, and it's so intense, it threatens to destroy the ship, and the crew becomes afraid in verse 5. You ever been on an airplane and you hit turbulence? When that happens, what you got to do is you look at the crew. You look at the flight attendants. What is their face reading? Because if their face is calm and cool, then that means this is not a big deal. Everything's fine. They're the professionals. It's not that big of a deal. But if the crew starts freaking out, that's when you know you can probably freak out as well, and this is really a bad storm. These are professional sailors, and they were afraid. They're partially because of the severity of the storm and partially because the storm happened at all, right? There are certain seasons that were designated as safe to travel on the sea. Now, you might hit some bad weather in the midst of them, but you were pretty confident you weren't going to hit a storm that could potentially destroy your whole boat. And so the surprise of the storm when it happened and the severity of it has the crew freaking out, and they begin to pray. And they are praying to whatever God they worship. These are SOS prayers of help. God, help me. But we know these prayers aren't going to do any good. Because this hodgepodge of people worship a hodgepodge of man-made fictional notions of spirituality and not the one true creator God and sustainer of all existence. And so the crew gets so overwhelmed, we see in verse 5, they resort to throwing the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship and makes it easier to ride in the storm. That would have been the last resort, meaning they fought against this storm for as long as they could. The cargo is how they paid for the trip, how they got paid, how they lived, how they kept being employed. 
right? They had to make a delivery. Think about if an Amazon delivery truck got stuck in a storm and to get through it to make it easier for them, the driver just starts chucking passages into, or packages into Lake Michigan. That guy's going to get fired real quick. They have no choice but to start throwing cargo and worrying about their job way later because right now it's just about survival. See also the word they use in verse 5. They hurled the cargo into the sea. God hurled the great wind, threw with intensity this great wind, and so they, in turn, hurled the cargo into the sea. Whatever form of personal spirituality didn't fix things for them, and neither did their own work, their own abilities to take, take action upon themselves. In the midst of all of this, this storm that is confounding and freaking out these professional sailors, where's our boy Jonah? The captain finds him sleeping in the inner part of the ship. This storm that is overwhelming the professionals was just rocking Jonah to sleep. Verse 6, the captain wakes up Jonah and look at what he tells Jonah to do. Arise, call out to your God. What was God's instruction to the prophet in verse 2? Arise, go to Nineveh and call out against them. Arise and call out. That's how Jonah was woken from this deep sleep. The words of God coming out of this captain's mouth have chased him into the middle of the sea. The captain tells Jonah to pray to his God. We've tried every other God represented on this vessel. Maybe yours will be the one to show us some mercy and fix it. Because even the captain realizes that they were dealing with something that is bigger than just a regular storm. He knew this storm had divine origins and that even a prayer wasn't going to fix everything. But rather, what they were going to need, what they were going to need to rely on was that the God that caused this storm to give a thought to us, to take notice and deliver us. This captain doesn't know Yahweh, but he knew that he needed Yahweh's mercy and grace to survive. The problem is this captain at this point doesn't know that the last thing Jonah wants to do was talk to God. In fact, we have nothing that tells us Jonah did pray, even though he knows he's got the power and relationship with God to calm this storm. Jonah doesn't pray. The crew decide in verse 7, in the midst of this storm, the prayers aren't working, throwing the cargo isn't working. Clearly something is happening. There's some specific reason this storm has happened. We need to figure out what it is. So they decide to cast lots to figure out what's going on. Casting lots is a primitive form of throwing dice. Basically, they usually came in pairs. They were basically like two stones painted. One of them, half the stone painted black, half the stone painted white. And you would throw them, and if both stones, it was kind of like, like an early magic eight ball. Basically, you asked a question, and then you threw the lots. If the lots both came up black, it was, the answer was no. If they both came up white, the answer was yes. If, they both, if one came up black, one came up white, it was like, try again later, or maybe, I don't know. This was a way of deciding things and like a generally accepted way of answering certain things in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, right? The last time we see it happen, we saw it in Acts when they cast lots to decide who was going to replace Judas. Um, that's the last time we see casting lots happen in the Bible. And I would guess that as they're deciding this to say, okay, we got to throw lots and we'll figure this out. I think at that point, Jonah knew what was coming, right? He knew if they throw lots, this is going to end poorly for me. And the lots fell, and it points to Jonah as the reason for the storm. And like in my head, like they throw lots, everyone's looking at the stones, it points to Jonah, and everyone just kind of slowly turns and looks at the foreigner. And they begin to bombard him with questions. Who are you? 
Where do you come from? Who are your people? What's your deal? Why are you on this ship? And Jonah is honest about it in verse 9. He says, I'm a Hebrew. I'm an Israelite. And see how he describes God in verse 9. He says, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. The way Jonah speaks about God is not as another long list of deities represented on the ship, but rather as the deity, the one in which all of existence finds its beginning and life. He even uses a phrase from the Psalms to describe the power of God in Psalm 95.5. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. I'm a Hebrew. My God is the God of all existence, the one who made the sea and everything else. He is the one responsible for this. Now, considering his actions and how Jonah has acted so far, it's kind of shocking he would speak about God in this way. But like we said, Jonah knew God. He knew him closely. He could proclaim truth about God, who God is, and yet was still on this ship in this storm because he decided he didn't like God's plan. Now, the crew are flabbergasted with everything about Jonah. Everything about him, especially we find out in verse 10, he tells them, I'm running away. This God who I serve, who I know, the God who made all of existence, the God who's in control of this storm right now, I'm trying to get away from him. What is this that you have done, they ask? Why would you do this? How do you think this is going to turn out for you, Jonah? If your God really is the God who made you and made all of this, what makes you think you can flee his presence. Even these pagan sailors were questioning Jonah's thought process. If your God is the creator of all existence, if he holds all things together, if he knows your sitting and your standing, he knows the hairs on your head, he knows everything about you, the good and the bad, he knows you intimately and personally because he formed you and crafted you, and you are made in his image and likeness. And with all of that knowledge, all of that connection, all of that power, on top of it, he loves you so much he sent his son to die on you that God came to earth, took on flesh, died on the cross, and rose for your sin. If this is the God you serve and worship and fear, why would you ever run from him? Why would you ever want to ignore his will? Why would you ever want to ignore his desire and plan for you? Why would you ever not want to hear from him? If he really is as powerful as you claim him to be, if he really is as powerful and awesome and good as you sing about him being, why ignore him? Why act as if he isn't actively involved in your world? Why ignore his word? Why pretend he isn't constantly speaking to you and calling to you? Verse 11, they basically said, Jonah, you've screwed up real bad. So how do we fix this, Jonah? Because we're stuck in this storm because of you. How do we make things right with your God? In reading this, I kind of felt bad for the sailors, right? They didn't invite Jonah on this trip. They weren't conspiring with him to get him away from God's presence. And as soon as they figure out who Jonah is and what he has done, they want to try and make things right with God. His power and authority clearly on display begins to do a work in the hearts of these idolatrous sailors. They are stuck in this storm, afraid and sailing for their lives, but it's not their fault. See, that's the interesting thing about sin. Your sin, regardless of how small you think it is or how much you've minimized it in your head, how hidden you think you have it, 
How it's just about you. It's not hurting anybody else. It's just your personal thing. You have it under control. At some point, it's going to explode like a bomb. And when that bomb goes off, it destroys not just the specific thing that it's around, but it destroys everything around it. Explosions happen, shrapnel is created, and the damage goes further and further. The pain and suffering goes further and further than you could possibly have imagined. Your sin has far-reaching results, even beyond what you think your personal reach and influence could be. Your actions, good and bad, have lasting effects on this world. You are affecting the people around you, and because of that, you are affecting the people around they are you are affecting the people around them. Your decisions now are affecting parents, your kids, and future generations, generations you aren't even gonna meet, your actions now have a ripple effect that will carry on well past your life. Jonah's decision to run has put an entire ship, this entire crew, into harm's way. They want to know how to fix the situation, and Jonah has a clear response in verse 12. Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. It's my fault this has happened. God hurled the wind, the crew hurled the cargo, and now to fix things, you got to hurl me. Jonah realized he wasn't going to outrun God. I don't think he ever really believed he could. He realized, though, God wasn't going to give up. God wasn't going to stop showing up. God wasn't going to let this go. He wouldn't let Jonah go. Jonah knew he screwed up and knew that it was time for him to face the consequences of his actions. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, 6, For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Not punish, not torment, not torture, but discipline and chastise. Serve a consequence in order to teach, correct, and restore. God doesn't punish his kids he wants to train, he wants to teach, and correct, and restore. God will go to whatever lengths he needs to go in order to get your attention and draw you back to himself. Maybe that's a blunt and honest conversation with a trusted friend or mentor. Maybe it's an experience of heartache and pain and, and some suffering. Or maybe it's being caught in a divine storm in the middle of a sea and being tossed overboard. However God's got to get your attention, that's what he's going to do. The point is, God is the one who is in control of all things at all times. And because he is omnipotent, he can and will do what he deems is right and necessary to call us back when we wander from him. That's the care, that's the interest and investment and involvement God has with his kids. He will go to great lengths to show you that you have wandered into danger and he's calling you back to himself before something truly bad happens. We aren't given a clear indication of what Jonah's heart is at this moment. He knew he couldn't keep running. He knew that he had to stop, and he had to stop because he was putting other people in danger. I don't know if this is full-on repentance for his actions, but it is a self-sacrificing decision that he makes. But the crew doesn't take him up on it. You would think they don't know him, and if this is the solution, you would think they would have chucked him overboard real quick. Instead, they row harder. They do everything in their power to get them out of this mess. But once again, we can't work our way in or out of God's favor. God's grace is his to give. We can't earn it or win it, no matter how hard we try. And so verse 13, the crew realizes they're out of options. The more they try, the angrier the storm gets. Jonah's life is what is needed. Nothing short of that is going ha to do. There must be justice for the rebellion against God. 
So the crew, having developed a newfound fear and respect for the power and majesty of God, cry out and pray for their own safety and for their own lives. They ask forgiveness for what God, for what they are about to do. Really, this prayer that the the crew prays before throwing Jonah overboard is the prayer Jonah should have prayed way back in verse 6 when the captain said, get up and pray to your God. Or maybe even instead of getting on the ship in the first place, Jonah should have prayed a prayer like this. But after praying, there is still more hurling as Jonah gets thrown into the sea. And at that point, the sea calms down. The crew is stunned by this development and have a similar awe and fear of the Lord that the disciples did when Jesus calmed the storms and they all asked, what sort of man is this that even the wind and seas obey him? Their lives have been spared. The the storm has been calmed and the stillness of it is an affirmation that they are not going to be punished for throwing Jonah into the sea. In their minds, they just killed this guy. The justice and power of God draws these sailors to worship him and make vows of dedication to him in verse 16. Yes, our sins are great and have great consequences, not only for us, but for those around us. But as is the nature and character of God, we can and will take, he can and will take all things and make it about his glory. If even one of these sailors truly changed by the, was changed by this trip, his family was generationally changed and had a relationship with God because of that, that's cause for celebration. God's power on display calls us to know him deeper, to trust him more. Yes, God's prophet is flawed, but God's power is great and his provision is perfect. And we see it in verse 17. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah that Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. It happened. Okay? If every other miracle we don't question, why do we got to question this one? If Jesus can be resurrected, we just celebrated Easter. If Jesus can come back from the dead, why can't God do this? It says it's a great fish, not specifically a whale. We assume it was a whale because it's big and Jonah's a full-size human. But that word great just means much or large. It can also mean important or strange. There's potential that maybe God made a special fish, a Jonah fish. We don't know. Or maybe it is a whale. Whatever the case may be, Jonah is in a bad way. But he's in that way correctly. For the wages of sin is death. He had disobeyed, rebelled, and actively ran from God. Sin equals death. God is just in carrying out the consequences of sin, which is to be death. God is also gracious and merciful and compassionate. These things are not at odds with his justice and righteousness. All of them can be equally true at the same time. And so God rescues Jonah from the consequences of his actions. He rescues Jonah from his watery grave. He rescues Jonah from death and gives him a chance at life and redemption and reconciliation. For three days and night, he is stuck in the belly of a great fish, Jonah was preserved, spared and saved due in no way to what he could or could not do. Jonah was not saved because he was particularly special or even good at his job. Jonah was saved because God chose to save Jonah. God's provision is his prerogative. For those who have put their faith in Christ, who have experienced the life-saving grace of God, it isn't because we are particularly special or good or kind or that God really needs us on his team. We talked about it last week. We keep it on the wall just as a reminder. Salvation isn't about us or our works or actions, but about the grace and mercy of God. 
God chose to save Jonah because he wanted to use Jonah for the glory of God. God chose to save you and to save me because he wanted to show his glory through us. The truth is we are all way more like Jonah than we care to admit. And because of that, we might think, why in the world would God want to save me? Why in the world, why in the world would God want to use me? How could he use me? But that's part of the fun, I think, for God. How much greater and more impressive and awesome is it when he takes us and uses us for his glory? As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. God's prophet, God's people are not perfect. We are flawed and are at times the antithesis to what we are supposed to be. Jonah ran away from his role. The hate in his heart for the Ninevites was too great. Can you love your enemies? Will you love your enemies? Not in theory, not in abstract concept, but in practical real life. God's power is on display in this opening chapter. We are reminded once again he is in control of all things at all times. That should be an encouragement to us. The God who tells us that he is a father to the fatherless, a safe shelter, a protector, a helper, a provider, that God is for us and has the power to protect and care for us. It also means that when, not if, but when, we wander away, when we find ourselves lost and distracted and even in a season of rebellion, we are not doomed forever. Our God will come and find us, will call us back to himself, and will go to whatever lengths he needs to in order to get our attention and help us pay attention to him. God's provision offers us what we most need, not what we always want. God provided for Jonah. When he was helpless and hopeless, receiving the consequences of his own decisions and rebellion, God provided salvation. Ill-deserving, undeserving, helpless, and hopelessly drowning in our sin, Jesus came to rescue us. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. But because of who our God is, when we needed it most, he provided us his son to go to the cross for our sins in our place. God's people, even the prophets, are flawed. But let us rejoice in knowing God's power is great and his provision is perfect. Let's pray. God, we all have our Jonah moments, our Jonah seasons. Those times where we know what is good, we know what is right, we know what is best, and we still choose our way over your way. We do it far too often. God, give us humility enough to know that you know what is best. Humble us enough to trust you. To realize that you have what is best for us all the time. Even when it's hard, even when it doesn't make sense, even when it looks like it's the scary, exhausting choice. God, help us to trust you in those times. To know that even if you are calling us to the scary and the hard, you wouldn't do that without being with us, without equipping us, and without being with us always. 
God, as we go into this world, as we engage with family and friends and neighbors and coworkers and just strangers, you have called your people to be the lights of the world. And one of the ways we show that light is by loving our enemies, loving those who it is not easy to love. God, give us soft hearts. Give us hearts that choose love and compassion. Give us not only the opportunities, but the desire to seek out the opportunities to show that love and compassion, to be those beacons of light, to actively look for those moments when we can step in and show the love of the gospel in our words and in our actions. God, in those times and those places where we wander away from you, help us to remember and rest in your power, rest in your provision, rest in knowing that you are a good dad who comes looking for his kids to care and take care and restore and reconcile and help us grow. God, you have made us to be the lights of the world. Help us to shine brightly. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name.